Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series held at the University of Sydney. This special event is part of the Sydney Science Festival program for National Science Week. I'm Dr. Peter Kim from the School of Mathematics and Statistics in the Faculty of Science at the University of Sydney. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. The format this evening is a presentation from our guest, Professor Hawks. Then we'll open the floor to questions. Now, it's a privilege and honor to introduce my friend and collaborator, Kristen Hawks. We met six years ago at a social event during my last year as a postdoc at the University of Utah. From the moment we met, we clicked academically and personally as we started working on the grandmother hypothesis together. Collaborating with Kristen has opened my eyes to a fascinating world of human evolution, anthropology, and questions about where we as humans come from and why we are the way we are. Kristen's and my collaboration across anthropology and mathematics has been profoundly influential and beneficial for my career. Academically, Kristen is at the top of her field. She is considered the world expert on human life history evolution, is a distinguished professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Utah, and is an elected member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And personally, as anyone who has spoken with her will attest, she possesses extensive experience, impressive insight, and abundant enthusiasm making her a great inspiration for me and the students and postdocs on our team. Thank you for joining us this evening and taking the opportunity to hear from Professor Hawks on grandmothers and human evolution. Let's welcome Kristen Hawks. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. That's, I don't know what to say. Thank you very much. And I'm so glad you're here tonight, all of you. And um, I hope I won't try your patience by talking about the things that are, uh, oh, not there. Oh, they're up there. Right. I am going to uh, see whether or not I can touch on all those things, which means I'm going to start off with, with a little bit of intellectual history. You know, I'm an academic, and the questions we ask are always shaped by what other people have found before us. And um, so I'm starting off not, not as far back as I might, but um, in, the, in the middle of the, of the 20th century where an American anthropologist, Sherwood Washburn, crystallized what, what it seemed like we knew then about the evolution of our own lineage. And he was very influential in the field because he talked about how important it is to use all the lines of evidence that we've got. And so, in a sense, he was the uh, father of the new physical anthropology. He talked about how important it is to pay attention to what was going on in the paleoecology, what was going on in the environment that are, that are in which our ancestors evolved, because that set the options that they had. So we needed to pay attention to the fact that there were these spreading savannas uh, about, well, in the Pleistocene, beginning of the Pleistocene, actually it starts in the Miocene, which meant that the forests were receding and these grasslands were increasing 
in, uh, across Africa, and that altered what was what it was possible for the populations that tried to live there to um, depend on. And it's the case then that the kinds of fruits and leaves that primates in general depend on are less available when you've, when you've got these spreading grasslands. And so the argument that um, Washburn made, again, building on other people before him, was that this means there's going to be a switch to hunting. These spreading grasslands mean more herbivores. So this is really an opportunity for hunting. And that is really what crystallized the evolution of our lineage, that hunting became the central thing. But when we compare ourselves, modern people, who are hunting and gathering for a living, well, absolutely we see that men hunt most of the time. Men do most of the hunting. And women gather, although women sometimes hunt. And um, what we see with the other members of our radiation, the great apes, is we do not see pair bonds and nuclear families forming. And yet, in all kinds of human societies, we do this. We're a pair bonding species. Those pair bonds don't necessarily last a lifetime. They may not even last very long, but they last much longer than we see in our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. And the argument was, Mothers, because hunting was then the way to make a living, paired with hunting males who then brought home the bacon to feed mom and the kids. So we got the sexual division of labor, uh, men hunting, women gathering, nuclear families, something that we would recognize when we, when we look at uh, human societies in the present with modern people like us. Um, and Washburn had laid this out and another archaeologist, actually a South African, but he, he worked a lot in America, actually worked in lots of places. He worked in Australia a little bit, or visited here. Uh, Glenn Isaac, who um, brought that hypothesis really down on the ground by arguing that the kinds of things that archaeologists were talking about in the very earliest record uh, that the archaeological uh, kinds of evidence gives us the very earliest record is a record of home bases. Because what you see are stones and the bones of large animals, and you see lots of different kinds of animals in these assemblages, and that suggests animals that had different habitats, uh, different preferences, open country ones, closed country ones, had been killed somewhere else and then brought to home to feed the wife and kids. So he argued that we can look at the archaeology and see uh, something that uh, is, is really consistent with the hunting hypothesis as the key to our evolution. Now, what I'm going to do is lay out a lot of counter evidence. But Isaac is still cited for these papers that he wrote in uh, many decades ago, um, right about the same time. <laughs> Another American archaeologist, Lou Binford, who also worked briefly in Australia, um, was uh, really shaking up the field of archaeology. And he went after Isaac in particular and, and his arguments about these early sites, especially what Isaac said he thought he was seeing in the sites at Olduvai, um, where he had worked and where some of the best records 
exist for um, the early archaeology. And Binford said, all those things you're saying about that record, you have not persuaded me. You have not shown what's necessary. You've just made up a story. You look at the stones and bones and you say, well, let's look at what modern people do when they're hunting and gathering, and therefore it must be thus. And he said, there's no evidence that people weren't just eating the nibs and nabs of scavenged animals that other carnivores had killed. There's certainly no evidence for home bases, no evidence for provisioning, no evidence for long distance transport. He went on and on uh, arguing that none of those things have been well worked out. And he, his complaints led to uh, lots of work as a consequence to try to tie down some of these ideas. So this cover is so wonderful because one of the things he said was, if we're looking at assemblages, bone assemblages that are produced by uh, carnivores, then, then the story of how that's done is different because carnivores use their jaws to crunch and um, drag things, whereas hominines, uh, those in our lineage, are bipedal like we are, tool makers, carry things, the ways in which those assemblages develop are really different. You need to do the work to see what assemblages look like under the two circumstances. So lots of people went out and looked at carnivore assemblages, looked at what bones were there, looked at how they were damaged, and so on. And it was in the middle of this um, debate, this was very much in the air, uh, with a lot of attention then focused on this part of Africa, Old Gorge, this is where the Leakeys had worked, where Mary Leakey had described these living floors where Isaac had elaborated his home base argument. And uh, Old Gorge gives us a record back to a little earlier than two million years ago. Lytoli is a place where there are the record of these footprints showing that there were bipedal hominines, so they had the kind of gait that we have well back into the Pliocene. So here's a really early record of our lineage. And um, this is also a place right now and then where there are these other carnivores that make a living. And they do what they do, killing those animals, making assemblages as a consequence. It's also a place where there are people. Now, modern people, because that's it's only modern people left on the planet, but bipedal tool users who hunt and scavenge in this environment and who form nuclear families and men hunt and women gather. So an opportunity to see what that looks like and what kinds of assemblages are produced. And so my collaborators, Jim O'Connell, who's, who's here, Nick Lerton-Jones, who I forgot to say on that very first slide, the, the picture at the top of the slide is Blurton Jones' book that's just come out. On uh, The title of it is Demography and Evolutionary Ecology of Hadza Hunter-Gatherers. I recommend it highly. So this is something he's been working on for decades, and finally it came out in two, 2016. Anyway, the three of us were involved in starting this project. When we started this project, the kinds of things, the issues that I've just been talking to you about were very much in the air. We all brought slightly different questions to the project. Um, but what came clear, especially because O'Connell is an archaeologist and had done, uh, looked at how people form assemblages in lots of other places in the world, 
what became clear was that in addition to home bases and then these one-off kill sites, which can happen anywhere because the animal can die anywhere, there's another kind of site that gets formed by hods of foragers where there are the bones of big animals. These are the dry season spots, the spots that are wet in the dry season. Lots of animals come there to take advantage of the water, which they need to drink, and it's an amazing ambush opportunity for carnivores and for human hunters. So this is a setting in which hunters take advantage of the animals coming, and because the place is stationary, even though it's one animal at a time, what begins to happen is uh, archaeological assemblages build up in these contexts. And we actually took a sample of uh, bones from one of these. Uh, they are not home bases. They are right at the place where these animals are killed and butchered and people eat meat and then they carry a lot of it away to home bases. But these are ambush sites sites where the Hadza themselves hunt, and they also scavenge the kills of, of other animals. Um, and we saw, just in the space of a short period of time, lots of animals represented in this same spot, had been killed in the same spot, adding to the archaeology. And in fact, the character of the archaeology is amazingly similar in the biases in the bone assemblages to the, the, the sites that are uh, Playa Pleistocene dates. So a Hadza hunting blind looks very similar. Oh, biased by skulls, biased by long bones, there's a whole story to tell about that part of the work. But the key thing is the ecological context of these Hadza sites and the ecological context of the early sites is all near water, water that would have been crucial to bring the animals together, and therefore animals that have different habits all come to the same place, but they all end up getting nailed nearby there, taken apart by um, the carnivores that eat them, but also by ancestral humans that take advantage of those, uh, those deaths, and the form of the assemblage looks very much like that. So what do we, there is a developing story about what we should learn from this scavenging. Um, what we see in this sample of Hadza uh, kills, so this is over a period when we were in the field. Uh, in this sample, there were 54 big animals killed by the, by the people that we were with, um, or 54 big animals taken, and 11 of them, 20%, were uh, scavenged from, the, um, from lions and hyenas, taken from other carnivores. And about 14% of the weight of meat that was taken by these folks was actually taken by scavenging. Now, we have to pay attention to that because the kinds of technology that modern people use and the kinds of technology that ancestral populations use are not the same. But the use of things like a shower of stones might scare away predators. And so uh, aggressive scavenging could have been something that our ancestors did, um, that these populations did. Uh, but now, when we're looking at modern people doing it, they're modern people, 
they have um, uh, uh, are, if, if we think of ourselves as smarter than our ancestors, they have brains the size we do, uh, all of the things that we tend to think of, of modern people. So the Hadza give us an estimate of the maximum, probably, amount of meat that could come from aggressive scavenging. Um, they're, they're modern humans, so maybe, maybe cluier about doing this. And in this sample, if we assume, which is a high estimate, that 50% of the calories that contribute to the Hadza diet come from meat, and actually more recent estimates are lower than that. We, we had a high estimate. We assumed it was about 50%. And that means 7% of the diet comes from something like power scavenging. And that's for these guys with this technology. And the bows and arrows are something that we don't see people using until the upper Pleistocene. So these ancestral populations didn't have bows and arrows. They couldn't have been quite as good. And in this sample, 85% of the meat that was scavenged from other carnivores was taken when the lions were still there. But here are Hadza hunters able to scare them off because of the technology that they have. So here's really a highball estimate of how much meat there might have been in the diet by these means. 7%, that's not very much. That's not enough to feed the kids. Um, now Isaac, who I started out talking about, uh, took seriously the criticisms that Binford made. And he said, this is a sketch that he himself drew. He said, well, yes, Binford is right. I saw these, these assemblages of stones and bones and I did, in a sense, make up a story that it was something very like what we see with modern people, hunting and gathering. And now I agree with his criticism. I agree that we can't tell, we haven't done the work to tell how much of it was scavenged, how far it was transported, whether it happened once a week, once a month, or this is a quote from Isaac, once in a lifetime, so the notion that this is what was fueling the bus is really being undermined, even by Isaac himself. And he said, of course, I and other people like me who work on these problems have really assumed that the most of the diet came from plants. So this is Isaac himself in 1984. He thought that was important, and so he had drawn students who were interested in the plant component of the diet. And the problem with the plant component is how do you see it? The issue with hunting and the reason those bones loom so large in the story is because they persist. There is the, these, these bones are still there to see. How do we see the plant part of the diet? And so he had a couple of his students working on this question of what does the plant niche look like. And um, one of his students, Annie Vincent, who was an Australian, but who had gone to, uh, I think she got Canberra degree, then gone to Cambridge, and then she came to the US to work with Isaac. And so she was one of the people who was looking at this plant component question. And uh, this paper was her first report on the 
plant component that she uh, quantified a whole array of things about a particular kind of resource that's really important to, uh, to Hadza foragers. That's these deeply buried tubers. And it's, it's one of those great ironies of history that this paper of hers was published in October of 1985, the very month that Isaac died. He, he died very young. It was unexpected. But here was this report from Annie Vincent coming out. And in her report, she had measured how long does it take to um, accumulate uh, a load of tubers. How many are there out there in the environment? And she quantified answers to these questions showing how abundant these are, how they're there in all seasons, and how all it takes to get them is a digging stick. So the kind of technology that we're talking about can have a very, very deep history, not like the bows and arrows that I was talking about before. And as she said, when, when I look at what's going on among these hods of foragers, it's almost impossible to come home empty when you go for the tubers. They're out there. You go to get them, and they're there, and you can uh, come home with a load of food. And there's one tuber in particular that she singled out as especially important. This one, as she said, is the favorite of hods of foragers because it really fills you up when you eat it. And yet it's the hardest to dig because these, the plants like to put their tubers down under the rocks and um, down to at least a meter and a half. That was her estimate. They can actually be deeper than that. So here was, here was Annie Vincent's report suggesting, wow, this resource might really be important. And what we discovered, although we had not gone there, we had not gone to the Hadza, so this again is my collaborators, O'Connell and Blurton Jones, we hadn't gone thinking what the old ladies do is important. It wasn't even in our heads. And yet, we came to see how do you actually do it? How do you make a living in this environment on these resources when you know there are no gardens to go to, you can't milk the cow, there's no 7-Eleven, there's no... You are uh, living on wild foods. So we were systematically collecting data on people of both sexes and different ages to see how they spent their time and what they got for it. And to our surprise, the work of these old ladies was just astonishing. So the two women on the, on the left there are in their middle 60s, maybe a little older than that. And those tubers there that are sitting in a fire are the kinds of things that I'm, that I'm talking about that are difficult to dig. And yet these women spend more time getting that resource than any than women who are younger than they are, than women who are still in their childbearing years. So here is something surprising, that what these women are doing is so economically important. And we were also surprised, because we hadn't expected little kids to be such active foragers. So these little Hadza kids are amazing at how much time they spend acquiring food, how good they are at some things. When it comes to berry season, even though they've got little tiny hands, we, we could see their efficiency at picking berries was, was pretty good. The difference with age is not so great for berries. But for digging tubers, this is really a problem. The deeply buried ones are just, that's too difficult. The kids are too little. They're not strong enough to do it. And so they have to depend on somebody else to cover their action because this is a staple resource. 
And we, our data showed that they depend on their mothers. So we could actually see that correlation between mom's work and how well their kids were growing until moms have a new baby. And so that woman on the left there has a baby that's not so new, but she's still nursing it. And when she's got that nursing infant, she's still doing some digging, but this nursing infant is also taking a lot of her attention. And what we saw was that then the correlation between mom's work and the wakings of the weaned kids disappeared. And now what mattered for how well those kids were growing was their grandmothers, the work of their grandmothers. And this, again, is, is a woman in her middle 60s, pretty buff, you know, there she is doing some very heavy lifting, complicated stuff. Sometimes you use your digging stick to um, lever those rocks. Uh, but this then turns out to be a really crucial contribution to how well the kids who are now weaned, mom has moved on to have a new baby. Um, and, and the other ones are going to be depending on, on grandmother's work. Now, as we were trying to put together, what, what are we actually seeing here? What does this tell us? Of course, we're looking at modern people. How do we think about what might have been going on in the past? But we are also interested in the, this evolutionary question about, about uh, what happens in... in um, uh, descent with modification, to be Darwinian about this. What happens in these radiations where we get diversity in lots of characteristics of animals through the process of natural selection? And as we were trying to figure this out, oh, I need to say this, sorry, uh, parentheses, um, I want to I uh, set up the problem a little more by reminding you of, of um, something that's really still kind of hard to get your mind around. This is, this is the radiation of the hominids. So it, a while ago, we talked about our own lineage as hominids, and then there were the great apes over there, but now the genetics shows how close we are to them. And so the, the contemporary phylogeny puts us all within the hominids, and so, you know, they all seem so similar in some ways. You know, those are the great apes over there. And then there's us, and boy, wow, we seem so different both from each other and then uh, certainly different from them. But actually, it's the case now the genetics shows us that chimpanzees are closer to us than they are to gorillas. And gorillas are closer to us than they are to orangutans. We are so, and yet we seem, not very similar. And if we started to make a list of the things that seem different about us compared to the other great apes, probably the first thing on the list would not be our longevity. Uh, there are lots of contenders for what we should put first on the list. Longevity might be way down there. And among the reasons to put it way down there is, is this notion that it's easy to have, that longevity is actually something very recent in, in human affairs, right? I mean, uh, you know, we all know that there are more old people increasingly in various populations, lots of stuff. 
Actually, we can now do things so we don't die of, of various things and uh, repair things that allow us to live longer. All these things are going on. And the thing that often we hear, and it's, and it's true, is that life expectancy has essentially doubled in humans since the middle of the 19th century, or even maybe a little more recently. And that, this, this figure is reprinted all the time, and it shows this, right? So there's um, time on the horizontal axis starting in the middle of the 19th century. And then uh, the age of menopause doesn't look like it's really changed. It's about the same. But life expectancy has really changed. So in the middle of the 19th century, in fact, it's not until the beginning of the 20th century that any national population has a life expectancy that's, that's longer than 50. So it seems like, whoa, this living so long, all these old folks, especially postmenopausal women like me, this is a whole new thing, right, in, in human experience. Well, it's not the case that this, the details in this slide are wrong. It's that life expectancy can be very misleading. So I'm going to show some more figures like this. This is the female half of the population pyramid. It's actually from the, uh, the census in um, Sweden in the middle of the 19th century. So this is an agricultural population. But, and, and each one of those bars is the fraction of the population in that five-year age class. And those orange bars at the bottom are the girls. The green ones are the women in the childbearing ages. And then those golden ages at the top are all past the childbearing ages. Um, life expectancy in this population is only 44 years. It's only 44 years because there are lots of youngsters and babies who die with very short lifespans. So the average gets way drawn down by high fertility and high infant and juvenile mortality. Life expectancy doesn't really tell us anything about how many old people there are. And in this case, if we just look at the adults, the, the, the female adults in this Swedish population, more than a third of them are past the childbearing years. And in fact, in this population, if you were a little girl lucky enough to actually make it to adulthood, your chances of living past the childbearing years are way better than the alternative. Now that's a, an agricultural population, relatively recent. You know, agriculture is within the last 10,000 years. It's, it's something very recent in human experience. But now we have data from populations where people aren't depending on domesticates, hunting and gathering for a living. And, and here are uh, the same kind of thing, although these are models built from life tables. Uh, the Kung, most famous hunter-gatherers in the world, the, the Kalahari Bushmen, and this is the work of Nancy Howell, and you can see there, again, the same idea, a large fraction, actually it's a third of the adults that are past the childbearing years. Life expectancy is only 30. But again, it's the, low, it's the high mortality of the youngsters that's drawing that down. The Ache, these are uh, foragers, again, uh, people who live, live by hunting and gathering. This is in the New World, in the Americas, um, in eastern Paraguay. And uh, this is a population it, with very high fertility, growing fast, so 
it's younger in that sense. Uh, but again, life expectancy is only 37, and yet there we've got all those golden ages up there. And then the Hadza, who I'm going to uh, pay more attention to, who you've already been introduced to. So we're back to Africa, but now not the Kalahari, but up close to the equator in northern Tanzania. And once again, about a third of the females, of the adult females, are past the childbearing years. So this is a real difference between human populations, whether we're talking about agricultural or hunting and gathering populations, and populations of our closest living relatives. So we now have data on chimpanzee patterns of mortality. Hard to collect that data. Actually, it's hard to collect it on human populations where people don't you know, keep birth certificates and know what their birthdays are, but uh, it's really hard with, with um, uh, other primates, especially long-lived ones like chimpanzees. But here is, is uh, the synthesis of five wild chimpanzee populations. And um, again, what you see in this figure represented is the end of female fertility is essentially at the same age in us and them. Females can give birth into their 40s, but not beyond, unless there's some fancy stuff going on with um, technology. That's true. Fertility ends at about the same age in, in both of us. But if you're a chimpanzee, your chances of living to those ages are lousy. So it's a tiny fraction of chimpanzee females that outlive their fertility. They become as that female you see, and she's actually at Yerkes, a place where uh, mortality is lower than, than in the wild, and you see how gray she is, and she is frail, has trouble climbing free trees and so on, but she's still um, cycling. So, on the other hand, in human populations, women outlive their fertility and remain strong and productive long beyond it. So here's a striking way in which we differ from our closest living relatives. And about the same time, we were trying to put together how we would think about what we were looking at in, in the case of the Hadza. Uh, O'Connell and I are from the University of Utah, and, and Eric Charnov is a theoretical biologist who was, who was also there at the same time, very influential on us. Really, I, I think of him as a guy I did, you know, decades of postdocing under. He was working on these questions about life history, and he was building a model to try and explain why life histories vary the way they do across all kinds of radiations. He was focused especially on vertebrates, but why is it that some have very fast lives and um, uh, mature very quickly, have lots of offspring, and then it's curtains. And then there are some that live a long time. They, they mature late. Uh, their, their offspring are dependent for a long time. And this is a figure that was in his book, focused on the order we belong to, the primates. And he was showing a pattern which is part of the model he was developing to explain it in which adult mortality is the thing that determines age at maturity. If adult mortality is high, 
then you better mature fast and start to produce offspring or you won't leave any descendants. So selection will favor maturing early. And so he was showing this with the primates. And the, the point that essentially anchors that is, is humans. He was using a hunter-gatherer data set. He was actually using somebody else's data set. He didn't even think about this. But there we have the great apes, and then we have humans. And we have the age of maturity that we ought to have for our adult mortality, again, if we take populations that are living by hunting and gathering. And yet in his model, females are giving birth throughout their entire adult lives, which is true of mammals in general. It's true of the other primates. It's true of the, of the other great apes. It's not true of us. And yet there it is. Well, that would make sense if those years past fertility are actually years that are spent contributing to the production of descendants. And that's really what we were face to face with as we saw our Hadza data. What those older females w were doing was subsidizing the fertility of the younger females so they could have next babies sooner. And um, if we consider this thing that he called an invariant in his model, age of maturity times adult mortality, again, using hunting and gathering examples, well, we just look like other apes. The, the product is the same. We are just where we ought to be. And yet, there's all this post-fertile, post-menopausal life that characterizes humans. But it's also true that we have babies faster. So another of his invariants, another prediction was age of maturity and the rate of baby production. We do it faster. We have shorter birth intervals than the other apes. And that's very suggestive if what's going on with those old females is they're allowing the younger ones to have them faster because they're subsidizing the process, then all these pieces make sense. And it was pulling these things together that suggested the version of the grandmother hypothesis that we continue to bet on as we get more pieces that uh, seem consistent with this kind of story. A climate-driven shift to foods that little kids can't quite manage on their own sets up a circumstance in which selection will favor the survival of those older females who can then subsidize the production of offspring. So we have this story about life histories. That could explain why when our genus first emerges, it gets into all these environments that it's never been before. It gets out into um, Eurasia so quickly. Homo erectus gets into all of these parts of the temperate old world very fast. Well, if you have uh, grandmothers, then you can be in environments that little kids can't quite manage to feed themselves. So these pieces of the story seem to go together. Uh, ideas about how we could explain the earliest archaeology, but could it really have happened that way? You know, here's a, here are a set of pieces that make what is a promising puzzle, but we're stuck in the present, right? We have all these lines of evidence, so this is where Washburn was really on the right track. We want to use the genetics, use the paleoecology, use the archaeology, use the fossils. We use all the lines of evidence we can, but we just can't go back and run the story, except if we begin to take advantage of modeling. And this is where 
on the scene comes my wonderful collaborator, Peter Kim. So here is a young mathematical biologist with exactly the tools to tackle these questions and who sees how interesting the problem is. And with Peter, not only do we get all of his superpowers, but he's got all these amazing students who are also interested in the problem. And so our chances of beginning to continue to move forward, boy, do they improve. And Peter built this agent-based model of the hypothesis I just was talking about. So there's all, the only thing that's in this, this model that he's built is a life history like the other great apes, and then we look to see what happens when grandmothering starts to make a difference. And that's what the model looks like. This is Peter's picture of it, so you can see that what's going on in this little toy world is actually pretty simple, but you have to think carefully about how to build the simplifications. And, and the way they're in there takes advantage of the modeling that, that, that Rick Charnov had done, putting that on the table about how, how these pieces of life history vary together. And um, when, when, when Peter runs this model, it, one of the nice things is we can say, well, let's just leave the boys out for a bit and see whether or not these things look like what we see in the world around us, although they're pretty much parameterized by what we see, so we always have to worry about that. But in fact, in this model, here uh, on, the, on the horizontal axis, average adult lifespan, and when we don't have grandmothering, the, the um, average adult lifespan that actually maximizes the growth rate, it's the one that would win against the alternatives, is right about there, right around 18. This is about what we see in the other great apes. And then when grandmothering is making this kind of difference, then things can move to a very different point that is the optimum, average adult lifespan, and it's one that looks very much like what we see in modern people, hunting and gathering for a living. And so that's just looking at the female side, but this is a two-sex model, of course, and boy, there's a lot going on with the fact that there are two sexes. You know, sometimes this gets hidden when we talk about nuclear families as units of common interest, but the sexual conflict is so interesting, and I just want to point to the fact that I was about 18, that was the equilibrium when we just looked at the girls, but now running the simulations, so with the help of John McQueen to make all this work fast, running the simulations now when, when grandmothering isn't doing this thing, um, what happens is the average adult lifespan sticks in there at about 20, so the boys have pushed, pushed it up to be above what would be optimal for the females. You know, note to self, watch this space for, for the sexual conflict. Um, and in fact, the, the males can even push things so that some of them go extinct. But the ones that don't stay right about there. And then when grandmothering is making this difference, what now can happen is some of these simulations, this is 30, run over a couple of million years. And what you see is that some of them escape that ape-like basin of attraction. And when they do, there's only one thing that happens. They go to another equilibrium uh, one that looks very much like what we see in 
modern people hunting and gathering for a living. And once again, the boys have pushed it a little bit above what would be optimal for the females. Um, but, but here, the only thing in the story is that change, and we get the shift in life history that really captures so much of what we see when we compare ourselves to the other great apes. Well, in a way, the, the simulation is just uh, telling us something that we, in some ways we already know. We need the model to check whether or not there's something we're missing in the story. But we already know, and people have written about this and written in, in uh, uh, effective ways, drawing our attention to the things we ought to, we ought to really be noticing. When we look at all the other apes, and it's true in general for, uh, for mammals, the, I mean, there are a few exceptions, but most of the time, moms are kind of on their own. You know? They uh, gestate, I mean, it's internal um, um, conception to begin with, internal fertilization. Gestation is internal. Mom has the baby, and then she lactates it. Uh, she nurses it, and when it's weaned, then it feeds itself and she has another. And this is the pattern for all of our closest relatives. That's the pattern, independent mothering. And I, I have these two uh, covers of books by Sarah Hurdy, because if any of you haven't uh, had a chance to read her books, I just can't uh, speak more strongly about how um, useful they are, how well she writes, how interesting you might well find them. Um, focusing on questions of trying to understand how natural sh selection shapes maternal behavior in primates in general. She's a primatologist, but she's also interested in this primate, uh, you know, us. Um, and, and we're not like that. Uh, you may know some single moms. I do. Trying to do it on your own is just about going to wipe you out. You know, it is not something that humans do. We human mothers have help, whether we're talking about Hadza folks or folks in any other kind of socioecology. And the fact that human mothers have help has been investigated in lots of socioecology. So again, a sample of books that have looked at this question. So it's not just the Hadza that, that you know, show this pattern of the importance of grandmothers. People find it in uh, almost everywhere they look, and sometimes they can really measure its effects. Um, again, you know, back to Blurton Jones' book, which I want to flag. Um, and that has consequences. Mothers have help, and so what, because the help is there, Human mothers can move on and have that next baby before the previous one can feed itself. You can't do that if you're another kind of ape, because if you do, the baby will not make it, right? It's not a winning strategy in terms of producing descendants. This is what happens in us. We have these really short birth intervals, much shorter than uh, characterizes the, uh, the other great apes. And... That means that moms end up with more than one to worry about at a time. And <clears throat> a consequence of that is then there's been selection uh, in, in our lineage on moms to, to deal with this allocation problem. 
you know, should I spend a little more on this one, a little less on this? All these difficulties, and you know, you think about it from the point of view of, oh, mom always liked you best, sibling rivalry, all these things, right? Um, this problem is something Sarah Hurdy has called ambivalent mothering. Because, oh, there's really, it's which way should you be spending your time? And selection has favored tendencies to do that in the way that ends up with the most descendants over our evolutionary past. Those consequences for mothers have really important consequences for infants. So if you are not a human baby, but you're a chimpanzee baby, or any, any ape, or in fact almost any primate, you, you come in to the world and your mom is focused on you because you're the only game in town. Um, you don't have to do anything. She's there for you. She is committed. She is focused. She's engaged. In the human case, mom's got other stuff to worry about. And in fact, if we look in all kinds of societies, often you know, you're the infant and you're not even on mom. You're being passed around to other people who are all coochie-coo, you know. The, so uh, the problem now for infants is really different from what we see in, in, in other primates. Now there's selection on infants to be effective at engaging the commitment of a caretaker. Again, something other primates don't have to do, other apes don't have to do. Human babies have been selected to be so engaging. Those of you that have babies know babies. You know this thing about, oh, they're just so cute, and the smile is so wonderful, and all this kind of thing that, that infants can do. And this trying to engage others is really different from something we see in, uh, in the other great apes. And yet this kind of life history is the, a life history that puts pressure to select for these things. And one of the things that developmental psychologists, who haven't, they mostly they haven't been interested so much in these evolutionary questions, but they've been interested in this question of how do babies figure it out? You know, I, I mean, a baby comes in and it's got nothing going. You know, how does it figure stuff out? And have been very interested and led their studies lead to this characterization of human infants as altricial, which is just technical for, boy, do they need a lot of help, you know? I mean, they're just babies, right? Just kind of floppy things who can do almost nothing for themselves. But socially, so precocious. So people do all these experiments showing that babies right early on are making these discriminations in those around them and making decisions about who to pay more attention to and who to pay less attention to and, and uh, all of these social capacities that are so distinctive of, of uh, humans um, are the way in which we care about that. Michael Tomasello, who's, and I put some of his books up there, he's a, he is also a developmental psychologist, but he's been especially interested in this question of what is different about the sociality of other apes and humans. And, and so his lab runs lots of experiments with, with human infants and with um, sometimes infants, sometimes not so, 
so young um, chimpanzees and orangutans uh, to try and see how different the kinds of problems are they solve. And, and Tomasello is the one who's used this label to characterize what we do. We do this thing that they don't do in which we care about whether we're on the same page with other people. And it, it matters to us, and we, we're, 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 we, we have appetites for it, we, we seek it out, we're so pleased when we find it. Right, what's happening in this room right now is my wanting you guys to be on the same page with me about this. You know, can we, be, can you see what I'm, are we, uh, all those things? No. You know, if we were chimpanzees, none of this would be happening, right? So this thing is a, it is a, it is, it is an itch we have to want to do this, and it's why our cultural lives are, you know, run the show for us. We care what others, uh, whether or not they're they're thinking about things the same way uh, we are, with with so many consequences. So. So here's, here's uh, the story to the moment. I've, I've been uh, trying to lay on the uh, table a hypothesis that, that grandmothering is, is something that may provide the key to why we have this postmenopausal longevity, to why we mature so late, to why we have such short birth intervals, to these altered maternal trade-offs that have consequences for the, the allocation problem that mothers face with these consequences for infants and what then has been selected in our social appetites leading to this, this desire for shared intentionality to be on the same page. But there's another really important consequence which uh, is kind of in the background of what I've said so far. Um, and uh, that's what about this guy? So I left out the males, although I said Peter's model is a two-sex model, so males have come into this already. But when we were talking about the age profile, I uh, just used the, the female side. Now I put both males and females. So these are population pyramids in which now on the male side, on the left, you got the same thing as on the female side on the right. And the, this is using chimpanzees again because for a great ape, well, not only are they our closest living relative, but we have by far the best data on chimpanzees in the wild. Um, so there's the, again, a model based on life tables of what the population pyramid looks like, and then using the Hadza to represent us, this is what a human one looks like, and now we've got the males as well as the females. And now if we take those two things and kind of smush them together to really crystallize some of the differences, um, it is the case that female fertility ends at the same age, about the same age in them and in us, you know, uh, end of childbearing in the 40s. But female reproductive physiology is this really weird story in mammals in general. You got all the eggs you're ever going to have when you're a fetus, so you just keep losing them. If you're a boy, you keep producing gametes, sex cells, uh, all the time. So it's not that you start with a number and then lose them all. Uh, gametogenesis, spermatogenesis is going on all the time. And so as we, the brackets there, are showing the individuals in the fertile ages. So the green ones 
are the chimpanzees, and the blue ones are the humans. So now we've got all these old guys who are still fertile, and that has consequences. It is the case that chimpanzees are like most mammals. The sex ratio in the fertile ages is female biased. This is true of mammals in general. And, and males keep moving on to the next female all the time. They don't stick around. Um, we're different because the sex ratio in the mating ages for us, in the fertile ages, is male biased. And so now we take Peter's model. And before, what we were looking at in that model was what happened with longevity as, as we simulate the model. So it's the same model, only now what we look at is what's happening in the sex ratio in what, what biologists call the adult sex ratio, because in most animals, uh, males and females are fertile throughout their lives, right? So they just talk about the adult sex ratio. In us, the adult sex ratio, if we're talking about sex ratio in the mating ages, has to ex exclude the females who are, who are no longer fertile, right? So adult sex ratio, male to female in the, in, the, in the fertile ages, and that's what it looks like without running Peter's model where grandmothering isn't doing anything. And it, is, uh, it bobs around because this is a probabilistic model, but you can see that it essentially stays, the equilibrium is female bias, the adult sex ratio is less than one. There are fewer males competing for a lot of females, so move on to the next one because there are a lot of them out there. But now look what happens when we've got grandmothering in the story and we get this shift in longevity, which now includes all these old guys. Um, and that means now we have a sex ratio that is male biased. And uh, those are, um, you can see that it, in the model it essentially doubles. And I think I took out the slides to go back and look at the data from empirical cases, but they essentially show the same thing. So what happens when sex ratios become more male biased. Well, this is something that evolutionary biologists have been interested in because in lots of animals, there are all kinds of mating strategies that, that you know, people seek to explain. And one of the things that emerged early as mattering is what's the sex ratio in the fertile ages. And so in lots of animals, and a lot of people modeling this question, repeatedly they come up with the empirical story is there's a lot more mate guarding and that's what the models say. If you got a mate, and if there's a lot of male competition out there going for every single one, you've got her hang on to her. If it's the other way around, you know, and there are lots of females out there, then, okay, then you move on to another one. So the more male bias the sex ratio, the more mate guarding we see in lots of animals. And actually, social scientists have been interested in this in, in humans. I, some of you may know some of this literature, like mating markets and so on, uh, in which the more male bias the sex ratio, the more stable the, the, the pairings are, the more stable the, um, the units are where, where males are claiming this female. The, more, the less male biased it is, the less of that you get, the more fragile the, the pair bonds are, even though we 
sex ratios are always male biased in us, so we're always on the male side, but it can vary in how male biased it is. And again, uh, especially recently, um, uh, people have really been coming back to how much this might explain about sexual strategies, both in humans and in other animals. And for primates that have what's now being called modular social organization, so a lot of primates don't do this, um, but in, in, in some, you see these units, family units, within larger communities. Um, but, but what you see is you can really tell which uh, individuals are, are in the pair, and you really separate them from the, from the next bunch, this kind of modular social organization. Some primates, including us, that's what we do. And... Um, what happens in, is then that the, whether or not a male can make an effective claim on a female depends on whether the other males will let him get away with it. And so it depends on what they think of him, depends on his position in, in the male status hierarchy. And actually there's a long history in, in ethnology, in, in cultural anthropology of um, people recognizing the importance of male alliances in all kinds of social contexts as structuring so much of what uh, happens within communities. So here's a story in which we, 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 here we are, a beast with shared intentionality. And so these little kids uh, are always in each other's pockets, whispering in each other's ear, being on the same page with each other. These are little Hadza kids. They're going to grow up. They're going to reach the mating ages. And the usual story that we tell about ourselves is that's it. He hunts and he takes care of, brings home the bacon for her and the kids. You know, back to the story that, that comes out of the synthesis from Washburn in the middle of the 19th century. It's actually older than that. In the 20th century, it's older than that. But, but so I put some pieces on the table that show, oh, wait a minute, you can't, that's not, you got to, what about her? So she is the grandmother of the baby in the middle, and then that's the baby in the middle's older sister, and so this is a very important part of what's going on. But now, now we've got some other pieces on the table that say it's not only that she is somebody we were leaving out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> How do I do that? I did it again. We left them out. That, for him to succeed in making his claim on her and hanging on to it, it depends on whether what they think of him. It depends on his position, what the other guys, whether or not they're prepared to defer to him, how, uh, um, how much respect they have for him. And so... I think I get too far away from that. That's probably it. So here is um, here is a, a Hadza hunter up there on the left, you know, going off for a day of work and you know going off to hunt. And and if he were to go after small animals, there are a lot of them, and um, we actually have data showing what he could get if he went after the small animals. He would be successful quite often, and he would end up with packages that are small enough that when he brings them home, most of them go to the wife and kids. 
He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes after the big animals. And we have data showing that going after those big animals means you almost always fail. In fact, in our data set, the average hunter succeeds only 3.4% of the days. So it's, he, he goes for a month, comes home empty-handed until he hits. And when he gets one of those big animals, everybody comes. So most of it ends up going to others. You know, what goes to his wife and kids is essentially the same as what goes to anybody else. In fact, there are a lot of hods of women who aren't married. They get right in there. They get their shares of, of meat just like anybody else. You don't have to be married to the guy. And his wife and kids don't get anything special. So he's gone all these empty days to go for the bigs. Most of it goes to somebody else. Um, and yet, that going to somebody else is really important to what the other guys think of him. It's really important to what everybody thinks of them, actually. So this thing about your position in the status hierarchy matters, and the way in which, in situations like this, you maintain or improve it is to try to be a better hunter. And that means more effort is going to public instead of public benefits, collective goods, than to what would uh, be a particular benefit to your own family. But the consequence of that, consequence of that is that because if I'm, if I'm a Hadza woman and I'm married to a hunter, let's say I get 5 to 10% of, of what he ends up when he gets a big animal, but it means that I get 5 to 10% of my meat from my my husband, kids from their fathers, but we get the rest of the meat we eat from the other guys as a consequence. So this kind of status competition ends up in there being a lot more for everybody. What's in it for the hunters isn't the meat, it's the status benefit, but when this is what's going on, the result is we all eat more. So, yeah, so I am, um, want to go back one there to say, here, here is an argument, hypothesis, that tries to link all these things, and, and I'm, I'm, again, Peter's really provided what's such a crucial foundation, and we've got all these pieces to continue to work on, and with all of his smart students, I hope there will be a lot more to say about this, but the life history pieces, Grandmothering looks like it's so crucial to this story, and we, we continue to find things that seem really consistent with that being on the right track. That results in this shift in maternal trade-offs, which mean different consequences for infants, and maybe things that are so surprising about our social style as, as apes and why it differs from the others. But we also get this male bias in the mating sex ratio, with really important consequences for what's happening with um, sexual strategies and why mate guarding becomes way important and then that makes the relationships 
among the men and male alliance is so crucial. So that's a lot of things. That's quite a house of cards, right, to put together. But I'm interested to see what holds you see in it. Uh, with all the parallels between humans and chimpanzees, mm. uh, what aspects of the model relate to humans but not chimpanzees uh, that give humans longevity you know, through evolution but not chimpanzees? Um, what's in the model is that grandmothers then subsidize the, the, the weaned offspring of mothers while they're still dependent. So these, these are kids who could not feed themselves. They require help from adults. And what it, the thing in the model that allows moms to move on and have the next baby is that grandmothers do it. And that's what drives longevity. So, so in fact, the model doesn't allow grandmothering in, in, in this simplification, doesn't allow, so grandmothering is pretty weak in this simplification. You're not allowed to do it until you are past your fertility. Uh, perhaps I haven't uh, expressed the oh, question, sorry. question very well. Um, okay. I mean, initially the simulation assumes that there are no grandmothers, uh, that um, life, expectancy, um, life expectancy is about 30-odd or something like that. Um, well, this is adult life expectancy, yeah. so, you know, it's more in the realm of 20, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I'm just wondering, you know, how do we get from why, there? Why isn't there longevity in chimpanzees? I guess uh, that's the question. So that, what happens there is if you live a little longer as a chimpanzee, um, the cost of having higher longevity is you mature later and your kids are dependent longer. And so the optimal longevity depends on the costs and benefits there. If you live a little longer, there are benefits to that, but there are costs as well. And the costs are increased um, age at maturity, and your kids are dependent longer. Is that, do you, am I being clear so far? And so when, when that, when that ape-like life history is, is running, it is the case that there are very few females who survive their fertility, just like we see in, in chimpanzees. And then... When um, grandmothers can um, subsidize still dependent offspring, uh, mothers can move on and have a new baby even though the previous one is not independent yet because it's subsidized by a grandmother. And that makes... So in the, with a, in the simulations, there are very few females who are surviving their fertility in the beginning. Tiny number, less than 1%. That's still enough because when they can make that difference, what happens is the, the benefit to being slightly longer-lived is you end up with more descendants. And so over a series of generations, what happens is longevity increases. Have, have I figured it out yet, what you're asking? I'm sorry that I'm not, I'm, I'm, maybe somebody else can, so I'm sorry if I'm not getting it, maybe, sorry, the microphone. Uh, I think the way I understand he asked this question is, um, what kick-started it in humans, because uh, if it had kick-started in uh, chimpanzees, they would uh, have contributed, I mean, uh, they would have had the uh, same benefit, uh, absolutely. right? If, yes. if they... Like when, that if, if females start to become a bit more, a bit more older and can help, okay. and then of course the, the chimpanzees can start 
having a new right. offspring quicker. Right. Why so, did that never kickstart in chimpanzees, but so, it did in humans? So, so the answer I would give, and I hope that this is getting at what you, or maybe it isn't, I don't know, but yeah, so let me speak to that, Carola, that um, the, this is where the ecological story is really such a key part of what's going on, so that if, if we're talking about uh, other primates, really, uh, but certainly if we're talking about other great apes, the kind of things that kids feed themselves with are things that that young juveniles can manage, you know, like soft fruits and or if you're gorilla leaves and so on. But if you are in an ecological circumstance where the kinds of foods that are available, uh, those are sometimes available. They are in Hadza country. Sometimes there are berries. But the year-round staple is something that just weaned juveniles can't manage on their own. So there's an ecological part to the grandmother hypothesis that you don't, it, you have, well, you have, a couple things have to be true, that you uh, have to have the kind of slow life history. So if we're talking about what set up the circumstances for making it, at least in this hypothesis, that, you all, that there is a very slow life history, late age of maturity, um, uh, relatively to other primates, relatively long dependence in, uh, in chimpanzees, and then what happens is this ecological circumstance in which those juveniles um, really can't manage the kinds of resources that are available. So, uh, you know, obviously there are still apes, right? They're, they're, they're not, I mean, it's, they're going fast, you know. I mean, very endangered populations. But the, the, the kind of cartoon I would draw of this is the ancestral populations that stayed at the edges of the forest and were taking advantage of what was available now in the spreading grasslands. They had different selection pressures than the, than the moms that stayed back in the forest. And then uh, uh, an ape-like life history is, is one that continues to persist. And so the very few females that survive their fertility can't really do anything to increase the number of descendants they have. And then if I invoke other models that talk about how you optimize, how natural selection optimizes this allocation more to, to reproduction or more to somatic maintenance so that uh, more goes into keeping the whole thing ticking over longer, those trade-offs are always there. And, uh, the, uh, you know, I, I would even, you know, manufacture the hypothesis that whatever these longevity genes are, and that would be such a good question, and in another lecture I'd talk about the little bit we've tried to explore that with, um, whatever those longevity genes are, they emerge, uh, the increased longevity, those mutations happen, they're just not favored, until you have the kind of ecological circumstance that favors them, but otherwise, you know, again, the model captures that kind of idea that the equilibrium is that it stays more or less ape-like, and you need this, um, you need two pieces to the story, the phylogeny and also the ecology. Did, did that get closer to your question? Maybe we can talk afterwards, and I can try to understand better what you're... Please, yeah. I, I had oh, one sorry. more question of my own. This was just... I tried oh, to clarify. Okay. <laughs> If I may. Um, please, please. So you, you said uh, at the end quite a bit about the other males. 
But I did. what about, yes. because the males also get older, right? So there are grandfathers about. Yes. Yes. So what's about, what, what's with them? What, what have they contributed? Are they just kind of going still on the hunt? And They are. If we take the Hadza example, for, for example, if we take the Hadza case, that, well, you know, we all age, right? And, and so there is a point in which, um, uh, so we know a few men who are, not hunting anymore, but, but we also know men who are still very effective hunters. And in fact, you know, again, this is one of the things that Nick sort of tries to investigate in his book. It is the case that if you look at the guys who are better hunters, who are um, past 45, they tend to have younger wives. So they're, you know, starting over again. And uh, so in a sense, it, again, this is a cartoon, but the males just keep doing the same thing and maintaining their position relative to the other guys and the respect they have for them. And then the better they are, the more effective they are at guarding uh, and making some competition for, for a younger female, a younger woman. Um, I'm wondering a bit more about clarity at the end of the model and what your crystal ball might say about how things might develop. Um, in terms of, I get the bit about male, uh, mate bonding, yeah. so, that, so the males are trying to stick with the females. Yeah. And although you're saying on the one hand that the, there's incentive to want to share and respect that bond, yeah. um, when we look at, say, the growth of inequality, is there a counter-argument that says that, well, I don't want to miss out, so I'm going to start getting more selfish and greedy, and is that going to start changing how things might develop in the future? And so that's why I'm not so sure about the very last bit of your argument because of that spectra of ongoing inequality right through history, and it just seems to be getting worse in the modern era. Yeah, I, I, you know, so one of the things that, that is often said when we compare, for example, you compare humans to, to the other great apes, you know, if we talk about this radiation, reproductive skew is, is, can be very strong in the other apes, so there can be an alpha male who gets most of the paternities, right? A really striking thing about humans is how low that skew is. But there are, of course, you know, Genghis Khan. There are examples, certainly, when you get um, uh, 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 different kinds of uh, socioecologies where you can have inequalities that, that then mean those few at the top can really get away with a lot. I, 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 and I think those questions are really interesting, and a lot of people um, investigate, you know, what's, what has gone on with this beast since the origins of agriculture? Good heavens, look at all this. And of course, I agree that's interesting. This is really about how we got to be this beast. And, and so, in some ways, what I have to say about what happens when you have agricultural socioecologies, and especially when you get state-level institutions, lots of interesting Issues emerge and, and, and parallels, parallel kinds of problems in state societies and small scale societies. But this, this model is, is focused on trying to understand, you know, how, how we got to be such an odd ape. And I would, I would, uh, my, my gambit would be to say, we got human way before we got agriculture, you know, and, and so most of the characteristics about our tastes and preferences and desires and so on. A lot of the things that run us, although they are very much shaped by our development and the context in which we develop, a lot of those things are um, uh, 
have a deeper history than what happens with agriculture. Right? Give me a what? Maybe you have a hypothesis about where you, where you think this might be going with increased inequality. No, I'm just not sure. It's wondering. A, it's a yeah. big, you're just wondering, just wondering whether, right. if we, since we have a model, whether it can offer any predictions down the track about how things might evolve in future. Right. Well, what the still sticking to hunter-gatherers, I mean, we have a data set where we look at things like uh, pair bond stability across, um, compare that across cases of hunter-gatherers. And, and what we find is, is consistent with the argument I was setting up. The more male, because this varies how male-biased things are, and, and the more male-biased it is, the, the, the longer lasting the pair bonds are, the less male biased it is, the more fragile they are, the more pair changing there is, and so on. So, and this has, this has parallels in what people look at in state societies with mating markets and so on. Um, so there are some, some sociologists who've looked at those things, both across historic cases and um, uh, using different examples. Uh, finding, you know, similar kinds of pressures, which doesn't surprise me because it's just economics, right? I mean, that's really finally what we're talking about. So, uh, if you mean where is, where is human evolution headed, if that's the question, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm an American. I'm not sure we're going to live past the end of this election season. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty demoralized about the future right now. <laughs> Sorry that I can't give you a better answer. So there was Perfect a question. Exam. Please, yeah. Yes. Of the um, uh, primates you mentioned, um, yeah. with the and the humans, with the um, uh, orangutan, mm -hmm. the um, great great apes, and the uh, chimpanzees, yeah. each of those have vastly different social structures. They certainly do. Uh, you know, with the orangutan basically being a, a single mother group the great apes being basically a male-dominated family group and the chimpanzees with a much more sophisticated uh, social group. You also showed a photo of the baboons, which have a very sophisticated social so, group. Sorry, what? Oh, the hamadryas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So the model doesn't seem to take into account anything to do with uh, social grouping. Humans have uh, a, a more sophisticated social grouping in some cases. Um, what impact does social grouping make and social structure make uh, when it comes to interacting with the uh, grandmother hypothesis? And does, does that, uh, the social grouping in itself, does that have an impact on the longevity gene um, expression that we talked about, or that you talked about earlier? Right, well in the model, there isn't anything like that. You know, we don't have any pieces like that in the model. And uh, so let's see, you asked several questions. You pointed out, and, and this is really important, if we look across the great apes, they're not all alike, right? Um, but what is the case is we don't find the kind of pair bonding we find in humans in any of them, as is the case for uh, not only the great apes, but although, you know, if we look at the the smaller apes, you know, the lesser apes. The, the story of hylobatids is that we find family groups there. So maybe some of you know about the gibbons. There are several gibbon species and, and siamangs in the hylobatids. So this is, they're our next closest relatives to the 
the great apes, and um, the textbook story about them is that we do see uh, pairs staying together uh, with the kids, and then they leave, and what you've got is that pair uh, staying away from everybody else, you know, sort of um, uh, territorial uh, separation with other from from other uh, given groups. Um, so that's, uh, so let's see, where do I want to go with this? What has happened as more data has emerged on those um, givens is that one of the reasons that picture emerged was the only, only those individuals that the uh, observer was watching were habituated to the observer being there. And so what happened when they um, were about to encounter some other gibbons, those guys ran away because they're not habituated to the observer. And now where work has been done, where there are human uh, observers studying neighboring groups, uh, it turns out that they're not, they're not monogamous, as was said, and there are lots of relationships and pairing between individuals that are, appear to be in different groups. So this is another complication. You might say, um, well, there's so much to say about uh, primate social organization, how variable it is. And I think the simple answer to the question of what about grandmothering in, in, as we look at some of this variation, the, would, I would, I would want to go back to the ecological story I was telling, that, that what characterizes all of these, uh, all of our closest relatives is that they are like other mammals in that when an infant is weaned, it feeds itself. This is, this is the pattern across the mammals, and, and our order belongs in the mammals, and it's the pattern across the primates, and we're weird for not doing that. We're weird in that we, when you think about uh, the average weaning age, you know, although it varies, of course, uh, both within and across human populations, is um, around two years or less in humans. And you think about a two-year-old, imagining that two-year-old making its own peanut butter sandwiches. Not going to happen, right? Um, we wean them way early, and then they uh, um, are dependent on others, uh, which is not the, the pattern we see in um, all the other. It's, it's not true of any other great apes, and it's not true of any of the other primates. It's not something we, we usually see in the mammals. But you're, you have, this is a more complicated question you're asking, and one of the questions you might have been, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but Early, one of the early objections to the, the grandmother hypothesis said, I don't think this is going to fly because isn't it the case that the pattern is usually in what we know from, from people who hunt and gather for a living, isn't it usually that uh, women move? Uh, you know, they leave home and go to live with their husbands, and, and the pattern is usually patrilocal residence. So I don't know whether you had that criticism in mind, but it's it's one that's you know, people have said, if it were the case that um, young women, even little girls, were marrying somewhere else, then they wouldn't be around their mom. Uh, but what's turned out when, when we have the data to actually look 
where, where we have more data than just the characterization of the residence patterns and can go back and, and see who's uh, spending time with whom, it turns out that mothers and daughters are, and this is, I mean, there are lots of Australian Aboriginal examples that, that are wonderful illustrations of this, where uh, the, the, the story is patrilocal residence is the usual pattern, and then we can look more closely and see who ends up being together at times that matter, and actually, usually, and it turns out these mother-daughter ties are, are crucial. Uh, and, and this picture of patrilocal bands has really been exploded by recent work looking at cases where the, the data are there, not just somebody characterizing the residence pattern, but actually looking at where individuals are. And often, this is a, true of people who are living on wild food, they're usually very mobile. People are moving around all the time. One of the things that's really well documented, thanks to Nick in the, in the case of the Hadza, is how much the old ladies move around. So that, and, and actually this is, can be a difficulty because if you are a grandmother and you've got, um, you've, you've got more than one daughter and one of them is having more trouble or has less help than the other, you're more likely to go help the one that needs it, which is actually what his data shows. But then it, that means that grandmothers are kind of erasing their tracks because it then they, the, that, that daughter does a little better, but maybe not as well as the one who was doing fine and didn't need that help. And so we have trouble measuring these effects, but um, continuing to do it. And in Nick's uh, Hadza book, he shows that actually the effect grandmothers have uh, on, on uh, the welfare of their descendants is really much stronger than in Peter's model. So we, we deliberately made grandmothering very weak to see whether or not even weak grandmothering could possibly be enough um, to uh, uh, propel. Uh, that, was, that was because somebody had developed a model who said this won't work and had said that no matter how strong you make grandmothering, it won't do it. And, and so the, this is the problem that Peter took on. Well, let's be careful to build the model and make it really weak and see if that's enough. So uh, I'm talking around your question without much of an answer. I agree, human social organizations are highly variable, but it also depends kind of on looking from where. You know, if, if you back up far enough, humans all look alike. <laughs> you know, um, it depends on what your comparison is. You know, the closer you get, then there's all this variation. You know, both. Uh, between and, and within populations, which is really interesting. Um, but if you look at that, 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 that big human bunch of dots over there, it's really far away from the bunch of dots that go with the other apes. Um, and grandmothering looks like a promising part of, of that story. Okay. In the interest of time, let's thank Professor Hawks.